Holy Spirit, I pray that you would come into the room and that you would bring a supernatural peace that we could share with the world. I pray that you would bring a spiritual justice that restores uh, not just economics and relationships, but souls. We pray, Lord, uh, for uh, the spirit of, of, uh, of justice with love and power in the place today. And I pray uh, more deeply, Lord, for a spirit of truth for each one of us, that you would make us a people of honesty, reconciliation, and healing. Uh, we look to you for the reality of things, Father. And I pray that by the time we leave today, all of us would be uh, slightly more real in how we see ourselves, the world, and one another. In Christ's name, everybody says, amen. Uh, we're doing a sermon series uh, on culture. Uh, it's really uh, about the culture in which we live uh, in this place, uh, in our locale, in our region, in our country. And about some of the difficulties that we, as Jesus followers, have in navigating that culture and really implementing and spreading the values of the kingdom, uh, because it's a complicated culture. Uh, in week one of the series, I talked about how it's a deconstructionist culture at this point, which happens to dominant cultures throughout history. Cultures sort of enter this phase where, uh, for whatever reason, uh, there emerges a passion to deconstruct the culture that brought us here, sort of deconstruct the system that brought us here, uh, to not honor our father and our mother, uh, to put it in acute biblical terms, uh, to, to, just, to just sever uh, from previous generations. And we could talk about why that is, but it happens. You can sort of trace it historically. And the problem is when that happens, cultures tend to throw the baby out with the bathwater. We tend to uh, reject good things as well as filter out bad things that have come down through the generations. And, and we, we need to be a bit more discerning. We talked last week about political culture generally and about how what's happening in political culture is that things are getting a little more, a little more classist, that more and more these days in our, in our, in our society, uh, politics is being, is being cast as an oppressor versus oppressed sort of framework. And the problem with that is that, well, it kind of divides people. And uh, if it's combined with uh, a big interventionist government, it can get kind of scary. Uh, because people in one class will compete for control of government and then use government to kind of force their will on the other class. And uh, this is a problem that our uh, founders and, and constitutional framers uh, grappled with uh, 250 years ago. Um, but we have sort of forgotten all of those values today. And I think, I think it's kind of a scary situation. And today we're going to talk uh, kind of again about political culture, um, but with a particular emphasis on social justice, on um, creating justice throughout society for everyone. So here's your warm-up question, and it's a thought-provoking question, so everybody go, hmm. All right, now I feel like we're in the right mood. I feel like we're in the right spirit. Uh, and, and turn uh, to someone next to you uh, and, uh, and ask the person, uh, what is justice for all? Open-ended question, entirely open-ended. If you are shy and you figured that you would visit Blue Water and just be anonymous, I apologize. All right, all right, that's enough. How many, how many of you just made some friends? How many of you just made some enemies? That's the thing about justice, social justice. I'm interested in your answer to that. It's a very provocative question for me. What is justice for all? Who's got, who's got, who's got an answer worth sharing or a confusion worth spreading? Who's got? Who's got? Equality for all. Something to do with equality? Anyone? Anyone? Is your answer sort of something to do with equality? All right. Uh, Jojo had an answer. Justice for all. What is it? Equality of opportunity. Hmm. Hmm. 
And anticipate. Oh, to treat people fairly and be and and be able to anticipate being treated fairly. Fairness, fairness, a powerful word. Anybody? Fairness, fairness, good. Equality, fairness. These are powerful words. Who else? Leon. Mercy, which I think is just kingdom brilliant. How many of you in in defining justice for all spoke about mercy? Yeah, Leon. Leon has thought this through. Yeah, I, I, think that's, I think that's a fantastic insight because if there's anything that's Jesus' kingdom, mercy. But we tend not to think about that when we think about justice. Fascinating insight, fascinating. I'll take one more, one more response. Freedom of, freedom of speech, freedom of speech. You got to be able to say what you think. Yeah, yeah, that is, that is constitutional. Freedom of speech. Nobody said freedom of religion, but yay, we're here. Um, everybody's got ideas uh, about, about justice, and, and social justice is, is huge in the current cultural conversation uh, that we're having uh, in our locale and, and in our country uh, today. I, I've always found, uh, you know, social justice compelling. It's been a huge part of my life. Uh, when I graduated from college, I moved into the most violent ghetto in America uh, just because I wanted to figure it out, you know, and I figured that, that Jesus would want me to figure it out. Um, but I, I, I have nonetheless always found it a difficult arena to navigate intelligibly because people all have opinions and passions. Words like equality and fairness end up being very powerful and provocative words. I read a quote last week uh, from a man named Adolf Hitler who justified his entire enterprise in terms of inner health and social justice. You know, and you know, on either side of that, you have, I don't know, Martin Luther King, <laughs> a figure contrasts against, against Hitler, who spoke about judging a man not by the color of his skin, but by the content of his character. And it's how people behave determines justice. And it's extraordinary how it plays out uh, in our culture. And unfor- unfortunately, I think ideas of social justice are really tearing us apart in our culture today, and it's one of those things, probably more than anything else, that tempts people to assign class. Are you one of the oppressed or are you one of the oppressors? And that ain't good. And then politics gets involved in that and it becomes very, very not good. Um, I don't know if you've had this experience. I was in, when I was in, in grad school and I was studying political theory, politics and policy in grad school, uh, so we were constantly talking about good policy and, and justice. And, and I remember uh, one day vividly I was in one of our, um, our, our political workshops where professors and grad students come to debate ideas. And, and, and I went to um, a university, University of Chicago, in which, in which debate was, was, uh, was passionate and, and very reputable and very honored. Um, it's, it's where you earned your stripes or failed uh, in my particular department. And we were talking about... Uh, we were talking about a presidential election at the time. We were talking about policy, and we were talking about social justice policy, and, and, co- and somehow abortion policy came up. And I was, I was in this room. We, we were some of the most brilliant young minds in the nation, really. And, uh, and everybody was talking about how a certain presidential candidate was anti-woman uh, because he was, he was pro-life. He thought that access to abortion uh, should be restricted. And, and that was a, a moral issue. In the 80s, that was kind of the moral issue. And this was uh, in the 90s. It was, it was still quite relevant. You don't hear so much about it today, which is interesting. Um, more on that later. Uh, but, but I remember, you know, I spoke, I, I, I just spoke up because I was listening to this and nobody was debating uh, the position. And I said, I'm pro-life. Uh, that I, I'm, I, uh, I, I think... Uh, abortion is, is grossly overused uh, in America today. There are about 700,000 abortions and 90, 
at least 99% you know, of them are used for basic birth control, not for reasons of health or in situations of, of terrible things like rape or incest and stuff like that. And I said, I, th I think that's a problem. I think, I think that's a... I think that's an injustice. Now, when I say I'm pro-life, you know, and this is just me, this is just how I metabolize it and how I do it, and I know this is a sensitive topic, so please, you know, this is me talking, not something I'm trying to force on you, but my pro-life position, uh, I, I try to be pro-life, you know, so for me it means extreme things, like I, I can't eat animals. It's just it's kind of how I, how I roll. I can't, I can't wear leather. I just, I just Respecting life is, is important to me and how I, how I uh, go through the world. Uh, Pro-life uh, to me means I take a, a, a good hard look at uh, patterns of violence in, in our country and how things like reasonable gun control might, uh, uh, might come into play, what it means to have a well-ordered militia. Uh, which is the constitutional phrase that refers to gun control. Things have to be well-ordered. They have to be well-organized. You know, I, I've got a whole, you know, I studied politics, so I got a whole thing about what it means uh, to be pro-life. Uh, and, uh, but I didn't even get the opportunity to explain all of that to my colleagues. They just, the room just was shocked into silence uh, as I was talking about being pro-life. And I remember one woman looked at me and said, that is so surprising. And another woman looked at me and, and said, I, I, I would not have pegged you as someone who was anti-woman. And then the conversation went on from, from there. Uh, you know, I, I advocated life. And, and as a result, I advocated safe behavior. I said, what we really need to talk about is why there are so many unwanted pregnancies and attitudes towards children and adoption and foster care and, you know, stuff like that. But man, not, I, didn't, I didn't get a, a hint uh, of respect in a place that was known for robust political uh, debate. Um, you know, I advocated life and, and healthy behavior, and they advocated a certain definition of freedom of choice. Freedom of choice was their definition of social justice. Uh, freedom of choice, particularly as it was connected to a reduction in male privilege. They had a systemic way of looking at it. Uh, you men are controlling things too much, um, which is interesting because the first women suffragettes uh, were anti-abortion. Remember, I tried to talk about that, shut down. Anyway, I'm talking too much about this story. We could debate the relative merits of the position, and, and you may have your own views on, you know, abortion rights versus uh, you know, the pro-life position, I understand that, but, but my point is, in, in this culture, my version of social justice, defending life, you know, the life of, you know, babies, in, in my thinking, got me cast as an oppressor. And, and that, the story, I think, is, I'm, I'm not trying to recommend policy right here, but, but I think the story typifies the problem depending on how you pursue justice, you could be cast as an oppressor. Right? And that's problematic. That shuts down debate uh, instead of um, promoting debate about uh, different truths. Contrast, it just so happened a short while after that interaction, uh, I was visiting the Bay Area, San Francisco Bay Area, uh, where I was born, where I went to uh, undergraduate, and I had a lot of friends there, and I got into another political discussion, which happens to me a lot. And this was in, this was in the San Francisco area, which characterizes the sort of political discussion that you're, you're likely to have. That situation. And we were talking about capitalism, we were talking about the economy, and they were saying, well, the problem with capitalism is that it's unequal. It, 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 is, it creates a, a bunch of unequal outcomes, and capitalist is an inherently unjust system. Well, what we need is more government control of economic outcomes, and basically they were promoting a socialist economy, uh, which is just, it's just wrong. You just, socialist economies don't work. There, I said it. Um, but, um, you know, y you, you want a society that takes care of people. Uh, but, of course, I popped up. Now, being educated at the University of Chicago, which has produced more Nobel Prize winners in economics than any other ten universities combined, pretty much, um, you know, it's, 
you know, the free market is a big deal. And so I remember talking with them. I said, look, you know, capitalism is, is a really good thing for the poor. How many of you are surprised by that statement? Capitalism is a really good thing for the poor. Uh, capitalism basically got rolling in the late 19th century and as late as 1895. Uh, you know, over 90% of the world population lived on, uh, no, over 90% of population in the West, which was the richer part of the world, lived on less than a dollar a day. Lived in absolute squalor, absolute poverty. And what capitalism has done, it has created uh, a level of wealth that has pulled people out of poverty like no other system in world history. Oh, today, the poor in America are like in the top 5% of global wealth earners. You know, capitalism is, is an amazing poverty alleviation device. And, and those people who study it through history, I mean, this isn't even a controversial thing for me to say. I mean, capitalism has vastly uh, reduced poverty in the world by like, you know, many, 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 many times over. Um, but not everybody benefits equally in a capitalist system, right? Some people benefit more. Everybody benefits, statistically speaking, but some people do benefit more. So it's relative outcomes uh, that bother people. You understand uh, the difference? Uh, China was communist from 1949. Uh, I mean, it's, still, it's still communist in, in some sense, but in the 1980s, they loosened their economic policy under Deng Xiaoping. You guys remember him? I'm feeling very old. Um, but basically, they opened up their economy to capitalist influence and foreign investment and stuff like that. So now China more or less runs a, a capitalist economy, though uh, a communist-controlled political system. Since they went cap cap capitalist, uh, like in the first 25 years, there's 30 years that they went capitalist, uh, they lifted 600 million of their citizens out of poverty. So twice the population of the US they lifted out of poverty because they went capitalist. Uh, and their socialist system you know, could not do that. Of course, it's, it's a great poverty alleviation device. But it's surprising to hear someone talk like that, right? It's surprising because you know, capitalism screws the poor. Um, well, not everybody benefits equally, that's true. But, you know, the capitalist countries are where all the poor refugees are running. And, and, and that's, that's, that's for a reason. But, of course, in that conversation, that got me branded as uh, a conservative Republican oppressor. I don't even identify myself as a conservative Republican, but, but people have a way of thinking about economics uh, that I think is not really historical or, or global. Um, the question is, how do you take care of the people who, who lose? How do you take care of the people who are having a rough time? But that's a separate question. If you're afraid of being labeled, is my point. If you're afraid of being labeled, if you're afraid of being accused, then it's really hard to stick to your convictions about things. It's really hard to talk about history objectively. It's really hard to talk about scientific economics. It's really hard to talk about anything these days if you're afraid of being labeled and accused. And I think that's a terrible culture for us. I think that's terrible. I've said things today about being pro-life and about capitalism. Um, it will offend a number of you. Someone will leave the church. Uh, and I just think that's a terrible culture. We should be able to talk about these things. The issues are complex and they are many-sided, and to navigate them, we need truth and love together. As I said last week, we need to be able to talk about realities and facts and truths and history in a loving manner. Truth and love together requires a third virtue, uh, humility. It's March. We just had St. Patrick's Day. Yay, Irish. <laughs> Represent. Only about half Irish. Um, St. Patrick, uh, he's an interesting figure uh, for social justice people uh, today. He's getting some play. 
uh, in different places. You know uh, St. Patrick's story? I mean, not like, not the holiday, but do you know the dude? Do you know St. Patrick and what he did? Uh, so he was born uh, probably in Scotland, somewhere in the northern UK, uh, as, as it exists today. And he was captured by Irish marauders. Uh, and, you know, at one time or another, every culture enslaved somebody. Uh, and so the Irish, they would conduct these raids and they would take prisoners of war and they would turn them into slaves. So Patrick, uh, who uh, was probably of Roman descent in, in Britain, uh, he, was, he was captured by the Irish and he was enslaved by the Irish. But then he escaped uh, slavery and he made it back to, uh, to, the, to the British mainland. And then he sort of had an encounter with Christ. And then he went back to Ireland, back to the people who had enslaved him. Uh, in order to evangelize them and to bring the gospel of Christ to Ireland. Uh, His ministry was just epic. It was just fantastic, facing down a lot of Druids who were sort of the pagan priests of the Irish culture. Druidism, uh, I don't know, it's it's portrayed in different ways, but, you know, they did sacrifice humans. Uh, and, And that's like the dark side of it. And they kind of respected nature and stuff too, in a way, but... Not a great system, not a great system of worship and not a great culture. Um, and so he faced them down and basically, you know, eliminated uh, more or less Druidism in Ireland as, and, and, uh, as the Irish island became Christian in, in broad swaths. Um, so question, uh, is St. Is Patrick a spiritual pioneer or is he a cultural imperialist? What do you think? Uh, and on university campuses today, you know, that's debated because there's a deconstructionist way to look at it. You know, he, he oppressed uh, indigenous culture. And so some people see him as a hero, uh, some people not so much. You know, flash forward, the history of Ireland and, and social justice is just fascinating. Uh, as you know, eventually the English on the, on, on the main uh, British island Uh, They oppressed Ireland for a long time. They sort of colonized Ireland, and the situation was terrible, terrible, terrible. Uh, They essentially massacred huge amounts of Irish people uh, through policies of, well, direct violence and also policies that brought uh, starvation. They kicked the Irish out of their land in order to to, uh, pursue profitable agriculture. Uh, Echoes of some wine history, if you know that. and uh, it, it, was just, it was just terribly fantastic. Eventually, the, the, the southern portion of the Irish continent became the Republic of Ireland. They won their independence. But uh, northern Ireland today is still controlled by, by the UK. It's still part of, of uh, the legacy state of the British Empire, which sounds like an incredible injustice. Um, and indeed, as you well know, there's been lots of terrorism, lots of violence in Northern Ireland as a result. Things have changed recently, and now surveys show that the large majority of citizens in Northern Ireland prefer to remain part of the United Kingdom. They don't want to break away. They're not siding with the terrorists, and indeed terrorism has decreased there. They, they like the outcome of the unjust colonization. What do you do with that? Why do they like the outcome? Well, because poverty has been fantastically reduced. You know, stability has been in- increased. And so to talk about the situation reasonably, you have to recognize the history of oppression. And you also have to embr- embrace the system that has brought well-being to larger numbers of people than ever. And that's a complicated social justice conversation. I just picked Ireland because it's St. Patrick's weekend. And because... I'm part Irish. Uh, what, 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 do you, what do you do with that? Where is the justice? Where is the social justice? Where is the equality in that tale? I'm, I'm, not, I'm not really sure. Uh, I have some friends who, who have a church in Northern Ireland, and it is a church that has been awarded uh, by the British government for social justice work. It is the most evangelistically successful church in Europe statistically speaking. It's a fabulous church. And so Sonia and I were visiting them once, and I sort of asked some of the leaders of this church, well, what do you do? How do you navigate your very complicated social justice environment? 
Um, and, and the response was, well, we stay out of angry conversations and we simply try to see people as people and care for everyone as best we can. An idealistic response or a really good response? What do you think? We just try to stay out of angry conversations and we see people as people. We see people as individuals, not, not masses of opposed groups. What do you think? I don't know, there's something about it that smacked of, of Jesus to me. Uh, loads of social justice uh, scriptures uh, in the Bible and at Blue Water, I think we are acutely aware of them. We make a huge deal about social justice around here. We, you know, just had a couple of services where we made a big deal of our different ministries and donations uh, to the poor. We take social justice as seriously as we can. We got, you know, the safe houses, the rehabilitation houses. We got the, uh, all the human... Ha- uh, trafficking stuff we do. We formerly ran the social justice restaurant. So I, you know, I probably don't need to go through a lot of those scriptures. I think it's really in our DNA. But you, I mean, depending on how you count, there's somewhere between 1,500 and 3,000 scriptures in the Bible encouraging us to put a priority on the poor among all people, to put a priority on the, the oppressed and the outcast and the marginalized. That socially speaking, those people should always be our priority. It doesn't mean they're the only people that, that we should love, but, you know, they're, they're the ones that we should prioritize in our efforts. Uh, whatever you do for the least of these, Jesus said, you do for me. He put it really, really strongly. Uh, is this not the fast I have chosen? Jesus, um, and the Lord speaks to the prophets uh, in, in uh, Isaiah, uh, to care for the oppressed, to break the yoke of oppression, to feed the hungry, uh, to, rapport, to, to repair broken communities. Isaiah 58, a lot of you know that passage really well. Um, the, the whole economic system that God set up for the Israelites in the Old Testament was just sort of fascinating how he did it. Uh, every, uh, every seven years, uh, you were supposed to take a year off. Agriculturally, you were supposed to just save and sort of coast and let the land and the economy just sort of rejuvenate. Every 50 years, all debts were forgiven. And land, yeah, yes. That we can get behind. Yes. And, you know, land was returned to, to the original clan that owned it. There was a reset button every 50 years. How does that sound to you? The Israelites never once complied with the policy, um, uh, which is a big reason they were driven into captivity by, by the Lord. But, you know, the Lord... The Lord thought this through a lot, you know. He didn't say that everybody needed to receive a paycheck every month, but he did say that when you harvested your field, you should always leave a little bit on the margins that you don't harvest and let the poor come and harvest that. It's a system of gleanings. You should always have a little bit set aside that the poor could harvest in dignity. You know, they could come and do a little work and provide for themselves. It was was really an ingenious system for a primitive agricultural society, but still, you know, all over Scripture, uh, you you find this stuff. So clearly it is supposed to be a priority for us. Here are my basic thoughts. I think our system today in this country, a system of distribution, equality, fairness, and stuff like that, is amazingly good. In fact, arguably the best in the world and the best the world has ever seen. But many individuals and some groups of people are definitely at a disadvantage in our system. Best we got going, uh, but but still not perfect. And therefore, we have to to prioritize. Uh, I think also that social justice without morality leads to social injustice. I think one thing that Jesus followers need to understand is that if we don't maintain our moral straight edge, if we don't honor godly morality, biblical morality, then no matter what we do to lift people up, it will fail. So those are two thoughts that I have. Great system, fantastic system. Don't destroy it, even though it's not perfect. (laughs) Uh, And moral discussions always have to have a role in discussions about social justice, Uh, My favorite scripture on social justice, therefore, comes from the Sermon on the Mount, and it's probably not the verse 
most people would pick from the Sermon on the Mount to represent social justice, but here it is. Matthew 7, verses 1 through 5. It's in your program. It's going to be up on the big board, although I imagine that a lot of you are already familiar with this verse from Jesus. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at a speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let's take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? I imagine Jesus said this with a, an interesting tone. It's a ridiculous sort of illustration. You hypocrite, you faker, come on. First take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. It's probably the most famous do not judge teaching and, and consider yourself before you... Uh, your own moral state before you judge someone else's. So, you know, why is that a social justice scripture uh, exactly? You know, first observation, as a social justice warrior, Jesus was very disappointing. Uh, he was so disappointing as a social justice warrior that it probably got him killed, right? Because people wanted a political messiah. And, and he, they wanted a messiah that stood up for the oppressed and defeated the oppressor. Who was the oppressed in Jesus' context? Well, I mean, the Jews were terribly oppressed. They were actually occupied by the Roman army, and the Romans were not nice. The Romans, like, executed people on a wholesale scale. Uh, they did not brook opposition. It was an incredibly unjust system, and, and the Jews were just, were just bearing uh, the worst of it. And when the Messiah came, the Messiah was supposed to overthrow. The Messiah was supposed to be that guy. And Jesus just refused to do it, even though he had awesome supernatural power. And, and that, in particular, is why Judas betrayed him, was his Judas was a, a political firebrand. Uh, he wanted to overthrow the oppressors, and Jesus wouldn't do it. He wouldn't do it. Uh, Jesus was not just enough for Judas, if you know the story. And so Judas sold him out for 30 pieces of silver. Judas might have had a money problem as well, but, um, but that's why, right? That's the gospel story. Judas wanted a justice messiah. Or was Jesus a justice messiah? And I think what he's saying is like, look, justice starts at home. Justice starts with you. Justice starts uh, when people focus on their own sins and their own character and they try to be loving instead of blaming other people for not being loving enough. That was Jesus' insights. He was saying that's the foundation uh, of justice. Is justice best brought by fighting against the bad oppressors or by being a good person? What's the best way to bring justice to the world? And I think, you know, Jesus recognized that the situation was bad, but he came down on the latter side of that. Like the best way to pursue justice social justice is to be a good person and encourage other people to be really good people. Justice starts with character. You know, not blaming, but developing. That was Jesus' sermon, and I think that was the sermon that got him killed. Uh, and Jesus was killed by those Romans. Those Romans that he refused to rise up against. Um, it's, 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 a, it's, it's an interesting and provocative social justice story. The spirit of poverty says, my enemy is this overwhelming obstacle, is the people who are against me, the system that is against me. And the kingdom says, hey, love your enemy. Love your enemy and, and develop yourself and trust the Lord for provision. Follow his ways and you will never be wanting. And that's an incredibly challenging teaching when people are oppressed by an invading army. But that's the teaching that Jesus gave. And it was just sort of breathtaking. And when, when Jesus uh, went to heaven and the church was inventing itself, the very first thing they did is that they organized for generosity and sharing among themselves, right? In Acts chapter 2, uh, those who had came and laid uh, whatever they had at the apostles' feet and they distributed it to the poor. And it was said in Acts chapter 2, there was no one among them with any need. They took care of, of one another uh, radically, the radical generosity and radical sharing. Why? Because they were just good people. And as a result, they became very popular people. They blamed no one, but they shared with everyone. And I think that's kind of the Christian spirit, just to, just to 
cut to uh, the, the, the chase. Um, it's, it's not good uh, to, uh, to have a social discourse that's all about dividing people into who are the oppressors and, and who are the oppressed. That is not good. It's not healthy spiritually. Truth discussions need to take place because the fact is that some people are at more disadvantage and some people have more advantage in our system, but we have to be careful how we talk about that truth. We have to be incredibly humble about it. It's not good to divide society into identity groups, the haves, the have-nots, the white patriarchy and the victimized matriarchy, um, this race versus that race and stuff like that. It's just Historically speaking, it doesn't really work. And spiritually speaking, I think some bad things happen there. Instead, I think it wise to create people of justice, individuals of generosity, forgiveness, and community um, building. Uh, generally, I think that's, that's what Jesus said. And that's why I love it when Martin Luther King preached uh, about a quest for brotherhood. You know, he didn't, he didn't shout down the oppressors. He said, I have... I have a vision of the future that includes my children sitting down with the children of white men and sharing meals at a common table. You know, that's why he said that I envision a future in which people don't even see skin color, uh, but they judge a, a man by the content of his character. I think if Martin Luther King were speaking today, he'd say, you judge a man or woman by the content of his or her character uh, because we continue to make progress on, on roles. Um, but it's a place where character is clearly the first priority and everything else uh, flows from there. I love the South Africa Truth Commissions after the end of apartheid in South Africa. There was a big question like, well, this has been an incredibly unjust system for a long time. How do we heal it? How do we heal it? And so uh, the leaders of the renewal came up with this idea of a truth commission. Uh, Pretty much no one was punished for their role in the oppressive system, but they were required to go to a, a, a truth commission, basically a court, where true stories about oppression were told and sins were confessed. And that was enough. Incredibly elegant. It's like, no, truth, but in a loving, forgiving environment. And, and I think that was probably about the best that, that could be done. Obviously, uh, there is some truth-telling that would be good in America. Last week, I talked about uh, you know, the terrible tragedy uh, of Ferguson, where a guy named Michael Brown, an unarmed young black man, was shot by a white cop. Uh, and the story was almost immediately you know, sensationalized. Unfortunately, that's where we get the, oh, no, don't shoot t-shirts. And, and you know, it, it sounded like the, the version that was popularized first was that some white cop pulled up, didn't like the looks of the black guy, pulled his gun, the black guy begged for his life, and the white cop just shot him dead. Um, and riots ensued. Uh, and of course, it turned out that that wasn't the whole story. It turned out that the young man, uh, you know, God bless him, had, uh, you know, just robbed a store, had treated people violently. The cop was responding to that crime, thought the man... Uh, fit the description uh, the young man, it turned out, uh, uh, tried to punch the cop while the cop was still in the car, um, you know, on and on. And the, the cop argued that he was fighting for his life, that he was really scared, and that's why he pulled his gun. But there are still more facts to the story. We don't know what the cop said to the young black man to make him so angry. You know, I, I think my take on it is that the point is not really their interaction as tragic and heartbreaking it is. The, tri what, the point is that you have a community, largely black, that distrusts the police force that polices it. And what are we gonna do about that? What are we gonna do about that? And somehow that was all lost in the acrimony and accusation that followed. Uh, uh, an incredible missed opportunity for us. Are situations rigged against certain members of society? Yes or no? Oh yeah, you bet, you bet, yes, definitely. Uh, are biases at play? Oh yeah, definitely, definitely. Sexism, racism, ageism, uh, politics, these are all forms of bias. And I think that they are all at least sometimes at play. If you are born 
urban Afri African-American? Um, do you have additional hurdles in your life that most people don't have? Oh, heck yeah. You know, I could go through the statistics, but they're almost meaningless. I'll mention one here in a second. Meaningless because, I mean, we kind of know them. Uh, not meaningless in that they have no effect. Um, if you are rural poor, white rural poor, let's say, do you have disadvantages and hurdles that most people in America don't have? Oh, yeah, you bet. You bet. That's part of the story of the Trump backlash. Um, you bet. What's to be done about it? Well, that's a complicated question. I'll, I just want to end with just you know some, some realities just to kind of get the, the juices flowing. It's clear that some people have harder lives than others. You know, believe me, I know. I've you know, effectively been a counselor for like 25 years. Some people have horrible lives and, and the system does not treat everybody regularly. But it's not a bad system. Um, I asked, who are the oppressors last week? And somebody said, the 1%. The one per How many of you are in the 1%? Well, what's the definition of the 1%? The 1% most rich people in America. No, no, you're not. Vern, I was counting on you. Oh, no, we never admit to that. We never admit to that. 12% uh, of the American population will be in the top 1% of uh, earners, no, 1% of income distribution at, at least for a year in their lifetime. So 12% of us will be in the 1% at least for a year at some point in our life. Does that make sense to you? Income mobility in America is fantastic. It's fantastic. 39% of us will be in the top 5% wealthiest income distribution. 39% of us at some point in our life will be in the top 5%. Sit up straighter. Yeah, and also tithe better. 56% um, <laughs> of us will be in the top 10% of American wealth at some point in our lives, over, well over half of us. 73% of us uh, will at some point in our lives be in the top 20%. So three-quarters of, of Americans will be in the top 20%. That's, not, that's different than... 1% of the population oppressing 99% of the population. You know, it's not a bad system. And, and that's hopeful. That's hopeful. It means that we should be encouraging to people, not inciting rebellion among people. You know, so that's hopeful. Household income by race. Oh, this is a good one. Household income by race. I am getting to the end. Uh, so this is, this is kind of disturbing to me. Blacks have an average household income of $38,000 in America, so roughly a family of four, uh, $38,000 on average, uh, which is uh, the lowest in America. American Indians, uh, Native Americans, I think it should be called, despite the government moniker, uh, $39,000, so just a tiny bit better. Uh, Latinos, Hispanics, $47,000 household income on average, so better. Uh, Pacific Islanders, $57,000. All right. You know, we're doing whites, $61,000. Um, does that tell you that, that America is racially skewed? Whites have an average household income of $61,000. Uh, Latinos, 47. African Americans, 38. What do you think? Because because the white race is, is at the top. But they're not at the top. Some of you may notice that I left out Asians. White, $61,000. Average Asian household income. Have Asians undergone a lot of racism? Did they have a tough immigration story? Were they put in Chinatown ghettos? Anybody heard of the Japanese internment camps? Rough treatment. Rough treatment. White, 61,000. Asians. 87,000. <laughs> just, just reach out and pat an Asian. It's like, well done. Well done. Nice. Good for you. I married one. Always thinking. 
uh, as racial groups go, uh, the, the, the best off is actually uh, the Indian Americans, immigrants from South Asia, $101,000. So whites are in the middle. Uh, so that's sort of a good news, bad news thing, right? It's that, you know, the system is not racially rigged, but it is racially skewed. And what are we going to do about that? And why is that the case? And what exactly is going on? Um, and those are all idea questions. We have to get to the bottom of this and not just make accusations, um, if, if, you, if you followed me. Uh, the Brookings Institute calculates that you have to do three things uh, to not be poor in America. You have to graduate high school. You have to hold down a full-time job, any full-time job at any wage. To hold down a full-time job and you have to not have kids until you're married, not have children out of wedlock. If you do those three things, your chances of ever being in poverty in America are 2%. You have a 98% chance of not being in poverty if you don't have kids out of wedlock and you graduate high school and hold a job. That is fantastic news. That is fantastic news. Uh, and it turns out that average household income by race maps more or less perfectly to rate of out-of-wedlock births. That uh, the problem uh, is that certain, certain sub-communities just have more children out of wedlock. And depending on your study, it's the number one driver into poverty. So where out-of-wedlock birth rates are high, income is low. And that kind of goes to family, and it kind of goes to character, in my opinion. And I feel like we need to be able to talk about that honestly. We need to be able to have moral discussions without giving offense. The moral straight edge that God makes such a big deal about. Sexuality and poverty are inextricably linked in America. And that's just a profound insight that the statistics show, even though the conversation might not which I think is hopeful, you know, because it, it gives us some good news to share. What should you do? What should you do? Well, all right, we're going to have a whole sermon series on this, and this is a larger conversation, but I'll say two things. One, take responsibility. Take responsibility for your life. Let's start there. Take responsibility for your life. If the only thing you have to do to stick out of poverty is graduate high school, hold down a job, and not have a lot of extramarital sex, you can do it. I believe you can do it. I believe you can do it. You might not like your job. You might not lock, like your marriage prospects. You know. But I believe you can do it and we can help each other be good citizens in that respect. You know. I think, I think you can do it. Take responsibility for yourself and, and speak responsibility to other people. Tell other people that you believe they can do it. If the system is entirely rigged against them, then they have no incentive to try. But I don't think that's the case in our country. They have every incentive to try. And we are the people of try. And we should, we should feel this. You know, encourage people uh, to try. And, and number two, I would say talk about ideas. Talk about ideas, talk about solutions, talk about realities and truths, as opposed to talking about who's against who and getting involved in the angry conversations, as my Northern Irish friends would say. Uh, so we'll leave it there today, uh, but you know, let's just leave with the idea that uh, the, the poor, the marginalized, those who have the tougher racial histories, these people should be prioritized in any system. They should be prioritized in any community. You know, and what we want to do is we want to be people of reconciliation, people who can speak truth with love, people who are radically generous, almost offensively generous, setting the tone for what it means for people to take care of people. That should be us, and that, that should be Blue Water. 
Oh, Father, uh, that is a, really a, a much taller order than just getting angry at the government. It's, it's much harder for us to be responsible, loving, caring, humble, truth-dedicated individuals. It's much harder than just being angry at the government. Uh, we need your help for that, Jesus. We need your help. I pray that you would make us people who honor one another and to find a way to honor your ways in the midst of every challenging social situation. I pray that you would make us people who are not afraid to be labeled. Make us people who are not afraid to be accused uh, so that we can speak freely and boldly uh, what we think to be true. And I pray that you would make us people who are willing to update our truth based on what we learn and the conversations that we have. This is uh, all sensitive stuff, Lord, so I pray that, uh, you know, if I said anything clumsily today, that you would just kind of take care of it and erase it and cover it with grace, uh, and that we would all just kind of move forward uh, as best we can to be a people that brings uh, grace and justice to the world. And finally, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would touch people who feel downtrodden and oppressed. And I pray that you would give them a free gift of heaven. I pray that you would give them the boldness to try. I pray that you would remove from their minds the lie that there is nothing they can do, that there is stuff that they cannot overcome, that their situation sucks and that's just the way that it is. Because of who they are, that is not true. That is not true. Things are tough, but he that is in you is greater than he who's in the world. And we are all more than overcomers in Christ Jesus. And this community is here to help you and to honor you because what you're doing is filled with dignity. Do a great work, Lord, and I pray that your church, that your people would be a beacon of justice in the world. In Christ's name. Look, if the Holy Spirit is speaking to you about a position that you've taken in the social just discourse, you know, you feel troubled, um, then uh, I want to make a radical suggestion. I want to suggest that you just get some prayer from the prayer team. And they're just going to invite the Holy Spirit to come upon you. And they're just going to invite God himself to speak to you directly. Maybe you'll get some prophecies from the people, but it's really a conversation from God to you, to you, to God. And, and let him uh, uh, make the low places high, the high places low, the curved places straight, and just sort of speak a, a message that empowers and clarifies for you. When in doubt, just go to God. Uh, if you are here today and you're just like, man, I have struggled with this spirit of oppression and depression. I have felt hopeless. I have felt like there's nothing I can do about my social position. Um, I want to make another radical suggestion that you uh, get some prayer. Because I think the Lord has some life-giving words for you. Everybody stand with me, please. Well, let's just raise our hands together. You are the God of provision and justice, and we take what you offer. Make us people of provision and justice. In Jesus' name, everybody says, amen.